you're listening to a very special episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where right now we're talking about Oscar movies. And today is, as I said, a very special episode because today is the final episode of our 2022 series of Oscar movies. We are going to be covering the last two movies uh, from the Best Picture nominees this year. Up until now, we have talked about Everything Everywhere All at Once, All Quiet on the Western Front, Triangle of Sadness, Top Gun Maverick, The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, and Avatar The Way of Water. So, oh, as well as The Fablements. So all we're missing is Women Talking and Tar. And guess what you're about to hear about today? You're going to hear us talk about Women Talking and Tar. Uh, both of these do involve spoilers. With Women Talking, we specifically give a spoiler warning. With Tar, we do not. But for both movies, we do talk extensively about all parts of the film. So if you want to go in without spoilers, um, keep in mind this is a spoiler-filled episode uh, with sparse um, spoiler warnings. So just know that going in. That said, uh, both of these movies are real thinkers. Like, there's, I don't think that knowing spoilers about either of these movies is going to impact your enjoyment of them that much, um, for what that's worth. But anyway, these are some of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this show, and that is not exaggeration. I really do mean that. So I hope you guys enjoy this a lot. I enjoyed this a lot, and uh, I'm not editing this at the moment, but um, I'm going to be very happy to listen back to this as many times as possible. This is a very, very good episode. Uh, it is very long, especially compared to some of the much shorter episodes we've been doing in the last uh, few weeks. So I hope you're going to stick with us for all of this. These are We had a lot of thoughts about tar and women talking and we also have some very special surprises uh sprinkled in here um where it's convenient so look forward to that tar and women talking both had scores by hildur guthness dotier i hope i'm saying that right um in the case of tar it wasn't actually used in the movie but in the case of Women Talking, it is one of the best scores of the year. So I'm going to play for you now the song Speak Up from Women Talking. And you can experience that for yourself. Here's one of my favorite songs from any um, movie this year, Speak Up by Hildur Guthnestotir.
Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies. Pierre, this is a special episode, as are all of our episodes. Why, why is it special? Because the last couple of years, we've been talking about every Best Picture nominee at the Oscars for that year. This year, we got really lucky. I think we'd done half of them before the nominations came out. And uh, so it wasn't actually too much to finish up the rest. And today, this is going to be our last episode on Best Picture nominees. We're going to talk about the two that we have left, which are hopefully very fresh, because I just watched them a couple of days ago. And if if I'm not mistaken, you just watched them like today. Yeah. Well, I watched half of Tar today, I guess, the last half. But yeah, both today, basically. So uh, what what is the first movie we're going to talk about, Pierre? Uh, We're talking about uh, women talking first. We're talking about women talking. If you see what I, I didn't do anything there, it's kind of a <laughs> weird way to. Anyways, uh, yeah, we're talking about it's the <laughs> it's a movie that's based on a book that was also called Women Talking. I'm assuming. Yes, I believe by Miriam Taves. Miriam Taves, and it's based on or inspired by real life events. I don't mm-hmm. know how inspired it is, but yeah, I don't know. This is a. I haven't heard anything about this movie until now. I feel like this was like my, like the dark horse of this year where like, I think a lot of noise has been made and like this movie feels like it was very under the radar for me at least. I did put this as my number two, I believe, on our end of the year episode. Uh, Yeah, I remember you talking about it. Like the first thing I remember was you said it was literally what the title is, is what you're talking the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just what it says on the tin. Yeah, what you said did not disappoint. Yeah, the movie. I think maybe part of why it, I, I, it's kind of under the radar is maybe because the movie title is is very straightforward and um, I guess doesn't stick out against Avatar, The Way of Water, Top Gun, Maverick, Women Talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it is a good title. I think it like, you know, obviously outlines. It, it is kind of like a meta, meta title and it really give you what, what you should be expecting from the from the movie. Mm-hmm. This is like exactly my kind of thing. I don't know how you would market this movie. And um, I, having seen it marketed, I guess, or at least having been alive during the time when it would have been marketed, I still don't know how you would market this movie because I saw no marketing for this movie. So I don't know if like anyone tried. This one played at a lot of festivals because like I saw it at TIFF. And then it played at a bunch of big American festivals, especially. But I didn't really hear very much about it since the festival circuit, other than the TIFF theater here was doing a couple of events for its release because this is uh, directed by Sarah Pauly, who is Canadian. So, um, you know, TIFF loves to promote Canadian film. Uh, This is, in some ways, a Canadian film. It's based on a book by a Canadian author, directed and screenwritten by a uh, Canadian artist. I assume it was produced at least partly in Canada, but that that I guess I can't really say for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. If this was under the radar, I'm not surprised because I didn't see anything about it except for when I was looking. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is just a tough movie to market. It's... I, I I don't know anyone I would really recommend this movie. To. I, I think it's an, a great movie. I think like like the general audience probably wouldn't want to see this movie because it's a very 
it's honestly it just it's it's a very tragic disturbing movie in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. and not disturbing in a way in like a dramatic way it's just it's this is this isn't meant to be an insult but it's disturbing and tragic but in a very slow and realistic way mm-hmm. where there's not like you know these huge moments throughout the movie it it it, it really does play out kind of like uh how i guess a situation in real life would play out you know so it is a tough movie to market, I would say, to find an audience for. The thing that I've heard it compared to the most, and like, I'm not going to compare it too much to this movie after this because the other movie's not fresh in my mind anymore. But I've heard this compared a lot to Twelve Angry Men, which uh, have you have you seen that movie, Pierre? I haven't. No, I know that that's with a uh, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, right? I think that's all the President's Men. I think. Oh God! Okay. <laughs> Or but, is one of them in that movie? No, 12 Angry Men oh is from like God, the 50s. Okay. Uh, but 12 Angry Men is, <laughs> it's about 12 jurors who are like, who have to reach a verdict. And so the whole thing is just the jurors trying to convince each other of what verdict they should reach. And so it's very much an hour and a half of just people talking and trying to work through their individual problems with this case and come to the bottom of the case. The thing being though, that like a lot happens, but it is, um, it really goes against the old adage of show don't tell because the only thing in the movie is telling. And uh, I think that, you know, movies like that can definitely work, but it's very, one, it's like hard to pull off and make a really good movie. But I think that both 12 Angry Men and Women Talking are very good movies that pull it off. But then more than that, it's really hard to market. 12 Angry Men is easy to market now because considered one of the greatest movies of all time. But like Women Talking just came out. So how do you market, you know, this new movie about that's just a bunch of people sitting around talking? Not a lot exciting happens that you can put in a trailer. And yet the trailer for this is actually pretty cool. So maybe that's maybe that's a bad example. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I I don't know. What what do you want to talk about? Do you want to tell us what the movie's about? So Women Talking is about a Mennonite colony. I guess, I don't know if it's actually ever said in the movie that it's a Mennonite colony, but like it is. It's very clear that it's a Mennonite colony. They're a Mennonite colony in 2010. They have sort of an epidemic of sexual violence uh, against the women of various types, but like it's it's really bad. Uh, At one point... Some of the women catch one of the perpetrators who gives up the names of some of the other people who have been committing these crimes against the women of the colony. And all of the men of the colony go to town with these people in tow to talk to the police and sort of get to the bottom of that. While the men are gone, the women hold a vote for what they should do. Should they stay in the colony and forgive the men? Should they stay in the colony and fight when the men return? Or should they leave the colony while the men are are gone? And they end up with a tie, with a three-way tie between the options, with all the women voting. And so a council of women is convened to talk about all three options and decide what should be done before the men return to the colony. And then the rest of the movie is them 
talking about the pros and cons of each option, their own personal experiences and, you know, why they believe their option is the right one and trying to convince each other to come to some kind of consensus because there's no option for half the women to stay and fight and have to leave. They all have to leave. They all have to stay and they all have to fight if they're staying and fight fighting. So they can't, they can't split up the options. Everyone's got to do the same thing. So they have to reach a consensus. And that's what this movie is about is them trying to get to that consensus. Yeah, that is the whole movie. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. They reach a consensus about two thirds of the way through. But there is still, like, doubt, obviously, I think, right? I would say around two-thirds of the way through, they get to a point where it's pretty clear what the what the winner is going to be, but there's not really full consensus until much closer to the end. Because, yeah. like, at a certain point, all of the women who aren't, who are still against the decision that's going to be made, they're not thrilled about it. They They still kind of need convincing... To really go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, what do you think? I, I mean, love I mean, this movie. I mean, this was your second favorite of the year, so yeah. Yeah, uh, I think like on, on our year on our uh, year in review episode, I, I was only talking about movies we hadn't already talked about, so I don't know if this was actually my number two of last year, but it was top five for sure. Uh, I remember seeing this movie and just being blown away by the conversations. I thought they were incredible conversations I thought that the actors in this movie were fantastic. And to me, it really resonated because it put a lot of things into words that I hadn't seen put into words that way before. So for me, uh, who is very far from this kind of situation, thankfully, I guess, like I'm not familiar with a lot of the issues that they're talking about. And, uh, I really appreciated basically the crash course in well all of the all of the things they were talking about. I think this movie this movie really lays out societal patriarchy in a way that I've never seen another movie do before, at least do so effectively before. Yeah, I well, I I think a big part of what makes this movie like pretty interesting, but then also like I, I hard to relate to, I guess, is the fact that they choose the setting as this colony that is actually, it seems like it, it is present in the year 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I th- I'd say for the first act of the movie, you can't really discern what, what era this is because, well, I mean, they're, they're on a, they're on a isolated colony where they kind of live like they did. I don't know. In like the 1700s or something, maybe 1800s. For me, that comes, that's a really powerful choice because potentially subconsciously in the viewer, but, but certainly deliberately, it makes you initially think like, oh, this is an old thing that's happened, that happened like back in the 1800s or 1700s. But then when you realize it's 2010, it doesn't actually change anything that happened. The point being that these are issues that women in general have faced for hundreds of years, at least. Mm -hmm that are no different today than they were back then. Even though this is, this takes place in 2010, but just looking at it, you know, until the first time you see a car in this movie, like anything that anything that's happening could just as easily be the late 1700s. Yeah. That I, yeah, I think it helps in that way. 
I think it just hurts it in terms of the audience. Like these are the, the, the issues they're talking about, I think are relatable, but I think the very, this is, feels like a very specific circumstance that you would never really debate in real life. You know, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say real life. Cause there are these colonies out there that do exist, but it felt, it felt like a way to simplify the overarching problem of a uh, patriarchal problem that we have in our society, but they, they use that, that Mennonite colony to kind of simplify the idea that it's either women, like they, they fight men or they forgive them or they stay. I, I wait, no, what, what are the options? They leave, leave, they fight, fight or forgive or do nothing. Yeah, yeah. Forgive and do nothing. And I do like, it is kind of like a cool art, artistic choice and how they they frame it and they're able to frame it in such a simple way so that this conversation does have a focus. But it, it I think in some ways it feels like the movie's trying to comment on current society. But because of the setting, I don't really feel like it has any effect, any true any true effect on it, because the solution here is that or the the movie presents a solution in that they leave right but like in the society we live in now i guess that's not really an option like that conversation can go on forever so i'm just gonna say i don't think that's like a fault of the movie i think it it's just the way the movie is created I think that I would hesitate to say this movie really presents a solution. It provides three options. The women choose one option, but especially as they talk about it, it's very clear that none of those options that they're presented with actually fix their problems 100%. Like the issues they are facing aren't maybe lessened by picking the correct choice, whatever that ends up being. But they're not going to be able to fully change the world with one easy solution. But they, but they kind of, well, they do kind of, they don't fully fix the problem, obviously, because in the end, whether this, any, any decision they make does have a a huge impact on their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my, in my eyes, there really was, it was kind of predictable in terms of there was really only one option there, Mm -hmm. especially because, from the what the movie has portrayed of the men in the society, it sounds like the vast majority of them are are monsters, mm-hmm. and they have no sympathy for the women in this colony, and that's where it kind of lost me a bit. Um, but obviously, in the situation these women are in, there's it's a lot tougher for them to make that because this is their lives, right? Mm-hmm. But I guess I didn't really see the movie ending any other way, which was kind of a predictability issue if that makes sense especially because i like all the women kind of come relatively from the same background you know this is a small colony Mm -hmm. they all kind of grew up the same way it might have been nice to be to have the opportunity to have like women from all different walks of life come together to talk about this issue but obviously again that's not what the movie is so I recently rewatched this movie, but before I did, I had uh, read some reviews, especially from a friend of mine. Well, I've, I've read I'd read some reviews from friends of mine that pointed out that like exactly what you're saying, the men in this movie are very clearly very bad. They're like, um, they're they're actually monsters. 
uh, and the women in this movie come from the same background, which makes it hard to relate in a lot of ways. But I think that, I mean, I think that's all a deliberate choice because to me, this movie is so couched in allegory. Like the point of this movie is to use those heightened narrative techniques to like get the point across. On the one hand, yes, this movie would be much more relatable and would be, and may hit harder in some ways if all of the women were from different walks of life and if the men were more realistic. On the other hand, it's hard to make the same philosophical arguments in the way that they are making them if the people involved aren't essentially like the men and the women in this movie aren't even men aren't even necessarily men and women they're exaggerated story devices like they're characters yes but like they exist specifically to embody certain archetypes so that the metaphors used in this story work yeah well i mean like again like it because it's such a it's it's just i think a creative choice to they had like they had to narrow this situation down to something i, I think i'm talking like, mm. when i talk about this i'm talking about a movie that could never exist because like there's so many different ways to to tackle a movie about just talking about patri- the patriarchy and the issues women face in terms of forgiveness acceptance fighting um etc so yeah i i just i guess part of me wishes there was more but again i don't think the movie could have really offered more in terms of what the movie is but what the movie does offer i think it does a pretty good job of doing i think uh, a lot of the character like the characters were relative like they all had different viewpoints i kind of wish we got more history like backstory about like do they all know each other really well i mean some of them were related there, there was like we kind of just jumped into this really quickly and Throughout the the talking, we kind of have to figure out who these women are uh, while they're asserting their opinions on the current situation. Mm-hmm. I guess one thing that did, um, it definitely confused me a bit in the first viewing. Uh, it's not immediately clear which side each of the characters is on because each of the characters is there because they are a prominent member of the community who had chosen their particular option. You know, there were some people that were there. I think originally they're in equal numbers. There were like three or four people that were there because they'd chosen leave, three or four people that were there because they'd chosen forgive, and three or four people there because they'd chosen fight. And uh, the first time I watched this, I wasn't super clear on who was who. Like there's some that are very clear because there's one woman who up until the very end is like, we got to fight. She's on the fight side, clearly. But Jesse Buckley's character, I didn't realize as much in the first viewing, although on the second viewing, it was much more clear than I had originally thought. She was on the forgive side the entire time up until basically the very end, but she was the second most aggressive person in that room. So it wasn't immediately clear. I didn't need labeled hay bales that everyone was sitting on, but I did find that like a little bit confusing initially. Although it didn't really detract from what they were saying because a big one, one of the characters, Rooney Mara's character from the very beginning, it's sort of unclear what side she's on. I think she was on the fight side originally, but from the very beginning, she is the most receptive to everyone else's arguments, not in a bad way, just 
that she feels like she's constantly switching sides because she's the one who comes in with the most, uh, I'm going to say with the most open mind, at least most obviously so. Yeah, I'd say Rooney Mara has a couple moments that really feel like the movie. It, I don't know. It feels a lot more focused when she's talking, I guess. Like, I, I think some of the characters feel like their arguments like kind of boil were a little basic in terms of they were focusing on leaving or staying, right? Whereas I think Rooney Mara, mm. who is kind of the audience surrogate, she 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 does talk about some more interesting factors. Like there's that one scene where she's talking about how, well, she's pregnant. And I believe it's implied, or maybe it's just stated already, I can't remember that the child she's having is is born of of her being raped, essentially. It is possible to miss that during the movie, but it is outright stated. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so like there, there's an interesting scene where one of the characters is talking about how how can she have a child that will be born of such a vile act and their father being so. And, and she talks about how, uh, I guess, how the child is just as innocent as when when born as the man was innocent when he was born as well if that makes sense and mm-hmm. i guess she comes in from a very i don't she never like truly wants to forgive them she just like you said she's open to all sides but she does bring up some very interesting thoughts about forgiveness uh especially in in terms of religion because uh, i i think that contrast of we we see some arguments about how how this conflicts with their idea of God and heaven, um, because that is so important to this colony. And how Rune, I guess Rooney Mara's character is trying her best to find that forgiveness, even though it she had I think she admits that she can't find it at that moment. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, you know, she, she like she literally like this this is like very quickly after everything was discovered so but yeah like i thought she i wish there was kind of more characters like her that brought they they kind of brought up points that weren't necessarily just about leaving and staying when she talked mm-hmm. sometimes it, it felt very like i don't know like spiritually and worldly where i think those those themes of forgiveness can be applied to a lot of parts of life um, mm-hmm. whereas some characters were like their arguments were just i want to stay but for my kids or i want to leave with my kids or like i want you know, stuff like that. So um, yeah, Rooney Mar. I, I think her acting was great in this too. I don't know. She, I, I've never seen her as like a care, an actor I really, really adore, but like, I've never been disappointed. I've always been like very happy with every performance I've seen her in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And she's, she's a great presence in this. I don't think it's Rooney Mara that specifically says it, but she's a big part of the conversation where they bring up the idea that the men who are the reason they're sitting there that day are just as much victims of the society that they're in as they are just in different ways, which I think is a very difficult point to make, but one that this movie makes very well without absolving the men in this case. Because again, like the men in this movie are just just are monsters, but like it's it's able to use that to show Sarah Pauly is able to really use that to show how the societal structures that she's showing and that in 
a potentially less heightened version exist in real life affect uh, both women and men negatively, potentially even in equal measure, if not necessarily an equal effect. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like that. All of that dialogue just really, really hooked me. And I, I, I did want more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the other, I, who else was today? I mean, I, I can't remember. Everything. I'm sorry. I can't remember. These are all actors. Like I, I recognize, but like, I don't actually know a lot of their names. So I'm going to help you out here. The person okay. who was most, uh, aggressively fighting to fight back was Claire Foy, who yeah. was, uh, also fantastic in this. She's probably, so we'll talk about my favorite actor actor in this movie, uh, shortly, but like Claire Foy, I think is the one who outside of Rooney Mara stands out the most. Yeah, she's, she's great. Is that the person you were thinking of Pierre? Uh, I wasn't thinking of one person in specific. I was just thinking about. Okay. You're thinking of a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Claire, Claire Foy was, was really good. She has a really good scene with who is who's the guy that plays Q in in James Bond Ben Wishaw uh also the guy who plays Paddington in Paddington and Paddington 2 oh I didn't know that that's really cool they have a really good I think that's probably my favorite scene of the movie uh they have a really good scene together where I guess he I don't want to say he he's watching them leave and he's he's a he's he wants he still wants to help or whatever and they kind of have a moment where she finds out something about him i are we spoiling things i feel like i really don't think you can spoil this movie but okay. well, for what it's worth sure <laughs> yeah we're fair. gonna say spoiler warning he, here he like he he wants to kill himself i guess or he wanted to kill himself and i thought that, that was like a really beautiful moment between two characters that i didn't i didn't think they really had much of like a connection if that makes sense like i don't remember mm. them talking that much in the movie but like like that was just a really really good scene and act well acted by both of them so yeah I thought, I, I mean, every everyone was, I, I feel like I'd have to like go through each of these actors. But I thought they were all really, really good. Mm-hmm. And they're a big part of what makes this movie work. We did mention, uh, we talked about this just a little bit before we started recording, but I am curious, like, what did you think of Frances McDormand in this movie? She's not in it for very long, but what did you think of that? I'm actually really happy she didn't have much of a role in this. <laughs> I mean, going into it when she was like the first actor i like genuinely like recognized i was like oh okay that's like kind of cool because i i think it, the the start of this movie is honestly so alienating uh that seeing a familiar face was kind of comforting and it was nice to have her but she, yeah she does leave after like like she's set up in the room as like a main character and you're expecting her to stay for a while and she just ends up leaving after like saying two things and i think i think that was really good though because mm-hmm. i think it, it this felt like a nomad land thing where I think she's just too recognizable and it would have really ruined the dynamic of that room if she were to stay. So mm-hmm. um, I was happy that she was able to step back and I guess she was a producer on this movie. So this wasn't like too much of a commitment for her. So yeah, I, I like that. That was really smart. And I'm, I'm happy they didn't nomad land her. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want another one of those. I actually really like her character in this movie as well because of the very little amount of this movie that she's in is actually really revealing about about her side because she comes in as the biggest proponent of stay and forgive. And while she's there, 
she is completely unwilling to hear any arguments other than we will stay and we will forgive the men. And like, I think that um, potentially there's a way to write this story where stay and forgive is a much more interesting option than it is portrayed here. But I think that stay and forgive and do nothing is kind of the worst of the three options. Like it's the only one that's unambiguously bad. I think it's narratively a really good choice to bring her in, show how unwilling she is to work with everyone and then remove her from the equation. Cause like it doesn't actually fully remove that side. Jesse Buckley is still there to bring the rhetorical weight of stay and forgive because the main purpose of that option is to question the other options, which Jesse Buckley does very well. But the only two ways you can really portray the option of stay and forgive are be completely unwilling to hear any other side or be like not happy about either side, but at least engage with them. And Frances McDormand represents the first of those. So it's very good that she's gone fairly early. I actually think that narratively her character is very well used. Yeah, like she served her purpose. I think it's implied that I don't know if it's they're talking about her, but the narrator uh, says that for someone like her, like an older person, it's much easier for them to forgive because they don't have much time left to live. So like, I, I thought that was an interesting point, too, is like, they, they talk a bit about there because there's this idea that the women leaving will put them outside of the eyes of God and therefore they will not go to heaven. Mm -hmm. And there's that, there's that idea of do we suffer now so we can, we can celebrate in heaven or do we defy God and risk not going to heaven to live a better life now? Mm -hmm. And um, that, that's another point that I, I kind of wish the movie explored more, but cause I think that was like a big part of, what makes that setting interesting. And I feel like a lot of it is kind of ignored, but when it is brought up, it, I think it like, it serves as a very interesting point as well for staying at least. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it would have extended the movie in some ways too. So I can see why they kind of cut through that as well. I, I do find that the religious points that are brought up are really powerful. Like Claire Foy is probably the one who, well, I guess all of them engage with the religious aspect of this story quite a bit. But like Claire Foy uh, specifically brings up the, I don't know if this is what it's called, but the just God paradox. Not quite in the way it's normally stated, I guess. But, you know, she says, if we are created in God's image, then if we decide to fight, that's what God would have wanted. And, and if not then why did God let any of this happen to us? Or something like that. I don't remember. I'm butchering it entirely. But yeah. uh, the religious aspects of this are very, very well done. And like really interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like there. There's a lot of good points brought up here. I think like the movie, it's weird. Like I feel like the movie could have been trimmed a bit. Uh, but I also feel like it could have been way longer theoretically with just like how much you could talk about this. So like, I understand there's, like, a lot that, like, I, I wish I saw them talk about that probably should never have, should not be in the movie just because it, it's not realistic for a movie to contain all these, all these segments. And they probably just had to find a way to take all of this and crunch it as much as possible and only really keep what they felt necessarily vital to 
to to arrive them at the the climax in the end. So I also I really liked we mentioned his name Ben Wishaw, who is the only man in this movie. He I thought he was I thought he brought in a really amazing performance too. I I kind of wish he all the characters kind of got the same backstory as him. I actually found his character a lot more powerful, I guess, due to actually knowing his past um, in a lot more ways because it is outlined that what he was excommunicated and he, he, he recently returned and is a teacher at the school and he went to university and stuff. I just wish we kind of got that type of backstory with all the other characters in some way because I think his character was massively helped due to having some kind of life clarified outside of the story where everyone else, ironically, all the women who I feel like should have like their, their backstories might should have been a lot more important were felt like they were ignored. I think like as well, though, it may be obvious from the title of this movie, Ben Wishaw does have a lot of dialogue, but uh, he's, he's not the one talking in most scenes. So I guess like we get a lot of the backstory for Ben Wishaw's character kind of front loaded. August is his name. We get that very front loaded uh, because he's never going to get the chance to explain his backstory. And also the fact that these women are actively bringing in a man to their women only meeting is like, we kind of need to know the context of why they decided this is the guy, which you know, can be established pretty quick, but that's why it's so important to get his backstory where the individual women here, they get the opportunities to talk quite a bit. So for most of these women, we learn as much of their backstory as we ultimately get to just from their conversations. Although it's not as, it's never quite as explicit. And in some cases it's left abstract enough that you can kind of miss most of it. I think on my first viewing, I didn't get a lot of who Jesse Buckley's character actually was. And on my second viewing, like she is the daughter of Sheila McCarthy's character. And there's some interesting dynamics there, but like she has a lot of specific relevance to the case that brought all of this on, which I missed mostly my first time watching this. I I think she kind of has a, a powerful moment when she well i guess her husband comes back early mm-hmm. and we see the effects of you know that this man has on her life really quickly when she comes back and her her face is completely beat up it's like a i guess it, it's a very a sobering moment i guess because it's kind of a refresher of like we see the violence at the start and there's a lot of talking and then we kind of come back to that and then it, it, it feels like it's rendered more clear for all the characters and for her like this is the situation they're in and that i think maybe speeds up their process in some ways gathers them a bit so that was uh i i, I think um i don't know her, her character was they're all good <laughs> the, the, the lady with the horses is good yeah i think they're I all really talk cute about her oh yeah uh, sheila mccarthy she's she's my favorite in this actually this is interesting. She was our friend of the show, Dakota Arsenault's old acting teacher, the the lady with the horses in this movie. Oh wow! Oh yeah. Uh, he's he's told that story a couple of times, and now I've told it once. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, I loved her in this movie, Sheila McCarthy. She's a Canadian actor who 
um, has been in a lot of things, but she's very big in the Canadian film industry, which I am not nearly as familiar with as I should be, but she's amazing in this. She keeps talking about her horses, Ruth and Cheryl, which are fantastic little little allegories. Um, I I love them so much. At key points in the movie, uh, she says it three times, but she actually only only says two stories about her horses. She'll bring up times when she was like, uh, out on the road with her horses and how she go and how she deals with her horses. And it's always relevant to the specific thing they're talking about. Uh, the second one, the one that's the story that I think works the best from that is um, she talks about how uh, she always dreaded going to the North road of the colony because there's a lot of potholes on that road. And so when she's on that road, Ruth and Cheryl are going, are zigging and zagging around, around the road They're just sort of like, they can't stay straight and it makes for a really bumpy, dangerous ride. But then she learned, if she learns to not focus too much on what's immediately in front of her and instead looks out into the distance and sort of plans ahead, she can get Ruth and Cheryl to calm down and just go straight on that road. And it worked really well. It's like, and, and at that point, they're talking about, you know, is it ever possible to forgive the men? And her point is, if we look way down the road and prepare for that day, maybe so, but not while we're here focusing on the immediate present, which I think is, I mean, when I lay it out like that, it's a super obvious metaphor, but I think it's a really, really well done one in the movie. Yeah. That was like kind of a, a cute payoff on sort of a joke that's set up. It's a cute way of, I guess, portraying. I wish there was a little more stuff like that too, where, cause it's a very static movie. So little moments like that where we can, kind of see her story like i think adds to making the movie feel a little more dynamic Mm -hmm. uh despite you know them just talking in a room but yeah she i liked her story. i like there's a lot of cute moments between the them that i i thought were nice um i thought like that uh that one scene where (laughs) the other old lady i think or maybe it's the same one she thinks she's dying but it's like her glasses. Are oh, that is that is the same one. Yes, that's the same one. Okay, yeah. There's like cute little stuff like that, or where everyone just starts laughing. And uh, I mean, there is that narration where I think the narrator says, "Like, oh, it, it felt, it feels like sometimes." What was it? Laughter is a way of showing how much we want to cry. If that makes sense. Yeah, some something like that. Not an yeah, exact thought- quote, but it's like that. I thought those were cool too. Those moments, um, it, it added a lot of humanity, I think, and a little bit of fun too. I think you know what is obviously a very depressing movie in a lot of ways. So um, stuff like that was good. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's a it's an overall pretty good experience. I think the biggest problem for me is just the color grading, or whatever it is, was just like horribly. I think it like it drew. It took me a while to get into this movie. I had to rewatch the first act, some parts of it, because I just couldn't focus. I was very disinterested from the start just because it just looked really ugly mm-hmm. from the beginning. Once I got into the story, like I, I was able to focus more. But I think that was a big... I understand why like they wanted to make it look gray because the movie is very... I don't want to say just depressing movie, but I don't think it worked. I understand the choice. They should have either like don't film things when it's obviously very sunny and just make it really gray or just film it all like at night or like in on a cloudy day don't film it really really bright and then just like 
add like one of those gray filters on top of it. It doesn't look good. It reminds me of the, the cheap way those some of those Amazon shows will try to make a scene more a, a show seem more dramatic by just adding like a gray filter on top, and it just looks bad. It doesn't add anything to it. Yeah, I don't think it detracted as much from the movie for me, but I can't even argue against that. I think it is a very strange choice to make the color grading what it was. For me, I thought this movie as a whole was very understated. So like thematically it works, but I don't know that it would have been a good idea to make like all the colors pop necessarily. But I can't really argue when you say that the movie looks ugly because like it, it does, it just does. Like <laughs> yeah. there's, there, it, that's correct. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I think the cinematography was great, though. I think that was just like a post-production uh, change, I guess, or issue. So, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's a it's a really solid. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I don't think I put it in like my top five of the year, but this is definitely like one of the better movies of the year for sure. I I really enjoyed it. I'm I I don't know about maybe I shouldn't say enjoy. I it was a good movie to watch. I think it was a very mm-hmm. depressing movie to watch too, though. Well, I think like what's kind of neat about this one is it was depressing and dark and like, I was going to say, but not bleak. It is bleak, but like it is, it's, it's not one of those movies that I watched and it left me feeling like really drained or anything. Cause this movie has enough levity that like, it's not just like beating you up all the time. It's characters do like ha- have good moments in addition to the obviously very grave situation they're in yeah it's uh i I think like i saw some complaints about how there were like too many moments of like levity in it but i think those those worked really well because that this movie would have been a a a drag to get through i think if it was just them talking about the current situation yeah if Um, this like this movie is bleak but it doesn't feel bleak which i think is mm -hmm. really important because you know you, you, as you're saying, it would have been a drag to get through if it did. Yeah, so I, I think that was a, a good choice. I don't know if it was that um, playful in the book, but that that was nice. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm interested to see what else. I might try to watch some of this director's other movies too, because it felt pretty good. One last question, because this actually ties into some stuff we're going to talk about later, probably. What do you think of the score by... Hilder Gudnadotir. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. I'm so sorry, Hilder. But um, I don't remember it too well. I, I definitely think it was used very well in certain moments, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's all I can really say about it. What do you think? The main theme of this is really, really, really good. I like the rest mm-hmm. of the score as well. But the main theme of this movie specifically is like, I mean, maybe I've just seen the trailer for it too many times, but like it's one outside of the Babylon score. It's probably like the song I remember the best from last year. Oh, cool. I Maybe I should oh. try listening to the because I guess it was more of an understated soundtrack. Right. But you're right. Like, mm-hmm. I remember there was like some interesting sounds and experimentation in certain moments. So I might maybe I'll give a listen to some of the tracks later. And I guess what I forgot to say is, uh, specifically, this movie is nominated for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. I'll probably say that at the beginning of the next time we start talking about a movie. But um, I guess we just kind of talked about our general thoughts on this movie. As an adapted screenplay, 
What did you think? I think you kind of, it, nothing you say is going to be a surprise. We <laughs> talked a lot about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's pretty good. I, uh, I, it's definitely better than, was it Top Gun Maverick? Isn't, isn't that in there? Yes, but I actually I'm I'm not going to repeat the whole thing because I can't I I don't remember it all off offhand, but I am going to direct you and listeners to the uh as of recording the latest episode of ContraZoom because our friend friend of the show Paulo Batista actually has a very good argument for why Top Gun Maverick is a very good uh, adapted screenplay. Oh, that's cool. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm gonna just leave that there and direct there. everybody to listen to that episode because it's very good. Actually, sounds cool. Yeah, I'd say it's a it's a really good screenplay. I I think it's like definitely this. Obviously, like the whole movie is it's the screenplay and the acting. I would say mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was pretty good. I think obviously I don't know. There's just so much potential for the screenplay that there's gonna be things that I wish there was more of and maybe less of in some ways just by the nature of the movie, but I, th- I thought it was as well done as it really could be. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what I would have liked changed in this movie. Like, I don't think it's necessarily perfect, but all of the obvious choices I can think to possibly change, I don't think there's a better option. Even the color grading, like the color grading is bad. Don't get me wrong. But I can't think of a way that it would have been... I, I can't think of another choice that's obviously better. Like, I mean, yeah. there are choices that are better, but the obvious ones, like, aren't. Like, making the colors more vibrant doesn't necessarily work. Even mm-hmm. though probably some variation of that is the ideal version of that choice. I don't know. I don't know how to say that particularly. Yeah. But I think, the, uh, I, I think it's a very well-adapted screenplay. Although I guess I can't say that with the specific knowledge of having read the book, because I have not done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess one, I don't know, one last thought would just be, I, I wish the staging was better. I think that's the right the right word of it. I, I, I think the movie didn't really use as much of, I, I found it, I think it dragged, or I found it kind of boring because it really was just women sitting and talking. I think if there was more of a use of the space they were in, or dynamics in terms of maybe two characters are talking aside from the group and then other conversations are happening at the same time uh, most of it is just kind of one person talking after the other and they're all kind of sitting in their general spots um i wish there was more of that too i think that would have helped it but well that was like the purpose of the two younger girls that were there just constantly playing and hmm. like not really engaging that much yeah and like I guess after about the halfway point of the movie, they're they're still there and they're still like goofing off in the corner, but it's much more pronounced at the beginning than it is near the end. Yeah, I, I think that did add like, I like that scene where there's that girl climbing onto the roof or something from the ladder mm-hmm. and her mom's like, get down from there. I thought that was like a, a cute little moment. But yeah, I just, I guess I wish they used this. It, it makes me think of, uh, it's probably a bad example, but the Hateful Eight where, I liked how in the hateful eight, when they're in the cabin, it is an isolated space where all the characters are there, but there's like a lot of isolated moments that happen between different characters throughout the whole thing. Right. Whereas in this, it's mostly just kind of one person talking to the group. And then we get some moments of maybe two characters will be outside, like grabbing water or taking a break or something like that, where we see some further interactions, but yeah. 
in the hateful eight, I don't know if this makes sense, but in the hateful eight, the way that the movie is shot, it almost feels like the cabin is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside where Mm. in, in women talking, I would say almost the opposite. Like they're in a barn and it feels like they use half the barn at most, which is because they use half the barn at most. Like they're, they don't use the whole space where Mm. in, the hateful eight it feels like they use more of that space than should even be there yeah they like make the most use of that setting um yeah, yeah this the barn was really just hay haystacks and i that's it and women talking so but hey mm. that's the title of the movie so there you go i can't blame so them for what, that what do you think if you're putting a number on it what number would you give it i think i give it i'd say like a seven i think uh, maybe a seven point five. You know, I I like I liked it a lot. I think I think just due to the nature of the format and that's kind of a bottle episode. There's a lot I wish could have happened, but that didn't. Color grading is obviously an issue, but you know, it's what it does well. It what it needed to do well. It did very well, which is had a great screenplay and some amazing amazing acting in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it's at least a very strong eight. It would probably it probably should go up, but uh, I want to I want to contain my excitement just a little bit for this episode. <laughs> so fair. I'm I'm gonna put it at a very strong eight. But the second time I saw this, I liked it more than the first time, and I think that the third time I see this, I will like it more than the second time. So that's probably gonna go up. That's pretty good. And now we have just a short little call in from friend of the show, Rach who also really liked this movie. We asked her to share with us her thoughts. I personally really liked Women Talking. I admit it doesn't really hold its own as like a standalone story, but I honestly didn't really read it that way. To me, it was more a Socratic dialogue about this cultural moment, like post Me Too, this really big question of what do we do about the men? Like, it's not new or anything. I had this conversation in my friend's freshman dorm room like 10 years ago. Systemic sexism is like a total can of worms. So it's like, it's if it's a systemic issue, can we blame men individually? Does that undermine the argument? Like, there's so much to talk about. And so many movies that are about social justice issues these days get like, so much criticism because they lack nuance i think this movie is like pure nuance i do think it feels pretty cold tonally i don't mean that in a bad way though i think it really fits with the whole mennonite thing (laughs) honestly feels more realistic for the conversation like when i've seen conversations like this and all the women have experienced sexual violence or seen it it feels pretty clinical. Like, I think people sort of imagine like a weepy support group type vibe, but honestly, they're, they read as strategy sessions. I think when sexual violence is like really real to you, like a concrete practical problem, you need a concrete practical solution and that's what you talk about. I think this movie does a really good job of switching between those tones, the way that like you see women, where they go from like sharing this horrible traumatic experience, everyone mourns it, And then someone brings up a practical solution and eventually philosophical, sociological stuff comes up. Like, sure, you can say all men are dangerous if they've been raised this way, but what do we do with our sons, our husbands, our fathers? Sexism is really multidimensional. I think this movie does a good job of capturing that and discussing it. Overall, I think it's good for what it is. 
It's obviously Oscar bait. <laughs> Thankfully, it's not Green Book. The ending is satisfying for the narrative, but obviously doesn't scale to a real life problems. Like when it ends, you're like, oh my God, thank God, obviously. But it sort of falls out of the allegory. It's not overly optimistic or sappy, really. It's really like bare bones as an ending. It almost feels pre-apocalyptic. Like we know as outsiders to, you know, this Mennonite community that leaving won't solve all their problems, but like... You know, it's what you want for these characters, ultimately. I think viewed as like an analogy for the entertainment industry, the end might make more sense. But then it's like Brad Pitt's executive producing. So that kind of undercuts the point there. Hopefully, like this conversation spreads more because of this, like more people in their living rooms and like dinner tables are just talking about this, like normal, regular people, not people <laughs> like me who took gender studies courses at liberal arts college uh, because it it is that big. Like it really does involve everyone. The scope is that big. So that many people should be talking about it and no one is safe from misogyny. Like it gets to each and every one of us like one way or another. Ultimately, I think this is a fine addition to the, you know, make your parents watch this canon. And I hope to see it win something this year. So, the next movie we got to talk about, and this is our last Best Picture nominee for this year, is Tar by Todd Field. This is nominated for a hell of a lot of awards. Where are they? We have... It's nominated for six awards at the Academy Awards. It is up for... It has its own... The awards for Tar have their own Wikipedia page. Uh, it's up for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Kate Blanchett, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. So, Tar, quick thoughts. What did you think of it, Pierre? Oh, God. I didn't <laughs> like it, Jeff. <laughs> oh, no. Which I'm so sad about because I've heard from you a few times and uh, from other people that this was something I should really look out for. I'm happy I watched it. I, I don't think it's... I can understand why people might like it, but I, I did not like it. Fair. What didn't you like about it? Let's get into some specifics of oh, this God. movie. <laughs> well, actually, before we get into why you didn't like it, do you want to describe to us what this movie is? Sure. It's it's about uh, Kate Blanchett, who plays 
Is it Lydia or Linda? I know she has two names in this text. It's both, Lydia. but it's Lydia Tar. Lydia Tar, who is a, an a, accomplished, a very accomplished musical, uh, a conductor. Sorry, I was going to say composer. I guess she composes too. She but. is also a composer. She's an EGOT winner for her composition, but she's yeah, so. best known as a conductor. Um, so she's like, you know, very highly celebrated. Uh, she has, she is in a position where she's at a very high point of European society, which I think is kind of distinguished. It feels like it's distinguished a bit in this movie from like American celebrity, where this is a lot more, uh, not glam, I wouldn't say glamorous, but it's a lot more classic, if that makes sense. Like it's kind of, she's part of high society mm-hmm. and being in the position, that position she is kind of dealing with how she she sees what well, we 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 understand it's clarified early in the movie that she, how she she consumes art not thinking about the art the actions the artist might have done or the background of the artist that uh, made the piece because she basically she can separate the art from the artist and we kind of see that idea brought into her own life where she is a very successful artist that is taking advantage of her situation. And that leads to a lot of, I guess, effects later down the road in the movie that kind of lead to her downfall. It's a tragedy for her career is essentially what we're looking at here. Mm -hmm. Very, I I guess, heavily inspired by uh, what we recently saw with the Me Too movement uh, about seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. interesting that these are both kind of me too movies what do you mean oh a little yeah yeah women talking yeah sorry because i would definitely say that women talking forever for all the ways that the themes are conveyed in women talking it does read very much as a reaction to the me too movement or at least like some kind of extension of it where this is also a different reaction to the me too movement yeah well i guess we're seeing this from the point of view of someone instigating the reason for the me too movement i guess yeah yeah i don't know that that's basically what it's about i really liked your summary there there's actually a lot to grab onto just in that uh first off you said like she's really high in european society which is differentiated from american society here i was thinking about that just the way you said that and would it be would it be accurate to say that tar in her position as a renowned conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic is in some ways closer to nobility than celebrity. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like that's what it's portrayed as at times. Like she's addressed with a title. She we we we, we mostly just kind of see her eating at like very classy restaurants. Like she's not I'd say like if you were looking at this from a Hollywood standpoint, it'd be a lot differently portrayed than it was in this movie, in my opinion, Um, which I think Mm -hmm. adds a little more of a flavor to what we're seeing here rather than just being the typical American uh, me too. I I feel really bad for saying the typical, the typical abuse of power in American society. Um, But but I think what's interesting is I think, I think what's kind of interesting is that her position as a renowned conductor, that position is looked upon uh, in such a way that like she can get on the cover of Time magazine. She's can be a no, 
she's like a known she's she's not an unknown even to potentially like the casual enjoyer of pop culture but also like she's also like not a celebrity in the way like real Kate Blanchett is a celebrity or real Brad Pitt is a celebrity you know Joe Schmo in Nebraska probably doesn't know a heck of a lot about Lydia Tarr but like they might know a movie star or something like that but at the same time it's like that doesn't mean that she's like not well known she is a pop culture figure but she can walk through the streets and not get recognized yeah which i again like i think it it does add a little like flavor to the movie i think it adds a certain level of how we see her downfall i think is might be seen as a bigger a bigger downfall because she was placed in such a unique position Mm-hmm. as it felt like it felt like she was royalty in some ways i think our perception of classical music it, it adds more layers because there's like there's a scene where they're talking about composers slash conductors from years past like the 1700s because mm-hmm. that that's a very old art if that makes sense and it has a lot of deeply european roots which kind of conflicts with the idea of the me too movement in terms of you know, like a lot of a lot of this has been instigated by white men in high statuses of society, right? And mm-hmm. it's interesting when you look at it in terms of like that entire art form <laughs> was created purely by white men and made famous by white European high class men. And mm-hmm. I guess we kind of see how, you know, someone in the modern era might be conflicted or might learn some things and based on entering that art form and uh, despite the fact that it, it feels very dated in terms of who actually created this art form, I, I think is the best way for me to describe it. I think I'm following. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know. I, That's I, thought well, I, I, I guess like, cause if, if we look at a lot of the me too movement was for Hollywood, which was, you know, founded 50 years ago. Right. But, mm-hmm. and it's like a very quickly evolving well about 100 but yeah yeah 100 years ago i think you can look at a lot of examples where we uh we recognize you know artists from it's still it's despite the fact that it was mostly made by you know older white americans when it started it quickly divulged and diverged into not okay not quickly but relatively quickly now we have a lot more diverse storytelling movie making if i was a if i was not white i mean i'm not completely white but if, if you are not a white person, you can find a lot of sources of inspiration for music, famous sources of inspiration, sorry, for mu- for movies now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of people that are colored. Whereas like, I feel like in that, when you're composing or in, and when you're in, symph- in the symphony art form, I guess, from what I can tell, a lot of the people that may serve as inspiration and, you know, really founded the idea of or that art form are these very old European guys. Cause it's a very, I'd say that the symphony is a very European centered art form at its core from before. There's also a lot of, uh, a lot of mention in this movie of the canon, which is, you know, the, cla- the, the classical music canon, which includes mostly those old white guys from the 1800s, 1700s, 
I guess 1900s as well, but like those old white guys that sort of made the classical music that we think of when we think of the term classical music. And I think it's really interesting in this movie how early on Tar, like in her biography that's read, uh, it's stated, it's pointed out that Tar, it's, it's kind of a point of pride that she has had modern composers, that she's performed things from modern comp- composers in the same performances as stuff from the classical music canon sort of like she's mixing the two and in saying these composers deserve to be alongside these classical greats uh although that's stated in her bio but then throughout the movie we sort of see see her in many cases kind of refuse to engage with that same idea there's a hypocrisy on her part where she is yeah she is saying you should separate the background of the person from the art they are creating. Whereas we see many times with her, she much favors certain people due to either the way they look or their culture because she she likes that and she would rather mm-hmm. hire someone that way. Uh, well, And the music comes well, second. There's a big scene in Juilliard where she's giving a guest lecture and she just really lays into this one guy because he's not into Bach because Bach was a white guy who was who had weight who had a lot of kids and wasn't like a super cool dude so he doesn't really want to he he doesn't really like supporting an old white man who's part of the canon but was like not a good dude and when he could instead support other composers and get his inspiration for his own music from people of color that had been underrepresented before where she sort of lays into him for not being able to separate the art from the artist. Although uh, early on, she's very much able to um, articulate sort of how different artists life circumstances led them to create the art they made. For example, like this whole movie revolves around her, performing i believe Mahler's fifth symphony and a big part of that is she she says that if you're conducting Mahler's fifth symphony you really have to engage with what Mahler was going through for when he wrote and first conducted his own fifth symphony so she's very able to articulate you know how art influenced artists but then almost takes offense when people are unable to separate the art from the artist, even though she specifically like articulates why you shouldn't do that very early on. Yeah. And I, I think that sets that the tone for, of... it does. Yeah. Talking... Okay. She, it sets the tone of who, who she is essentially at, at very quickly, which is a, a, I guess a smart idea for the movie. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to get into it, but yeah, I, I think the movie was, just cliche in my opinion um i think it brought up a lot of these ideas and just didn't follow through on it in any way and i think a big part of what like from what i can tell what really made the movie unique is that it's it's that this is a a woman in power who is doing what a man in power would do and it sort of feels like the irony of that situation is what the biggest draw of the movie whereas i feel like 
if I was watching the exact same movie, but with a man, I like it's it, it'd be extremely cliche if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. I think the biggest strength of this movie is what you just said. But in addition to that, the reason that this movie works for me, the way that this story is told works for me, is that Tar's abuse of power is very blatant. Like, you see it for sure, and you understand that it's an abuse of power, but it's Mm. also not, like, explicit. Like, you never see her have sex with one of the people in her orchestra. That never happens. Like, you don't see that. Uh, Mm. You never see her, like, get any specific gain for giving out favors for her you know, for people in her orchestra but like the ways that she is manipulative are very obvious but are like almost more insidious like there's a whole sequence in this where she has clearly it's never specifically stated but she's clearly become infatuated with the new cellist that they have in their orchestra so over the course of about 20 minutes of the movie, you know, she chooses to pair Mahler's Fifth Symphony, the big thing that she's been working up to this whole movie, with a cello concerto that this new cellist did when she was 13 and was really passionate about. So it's clearly like a specific choice designed to make this cellist happy. And then instead of giving the solo to the cellist who had earned it by being there in the orchestra, for however many years and being the first cello in that orchestra and working her way up there, she holds auditions, which the entire orchestra just refuses to be a part of, except for two people. And like Mm -hmm. that whole sequence, it's never specific, like no one specifically ever confronts her about it, but it's like the way it's portrayed is just like the worst thing that she's ever done is what it feels (laughs) like. I I think it it is interesting how the movie tries to play it subtly i i think stuff like that personally like i i thought that was just very blatant like she's obviously abusing her power like i get what you mm-hmm. mean where it's like she doesn't obviously like you know have sex with any of her subordinates we don't blatantly see her like verbally like cussing anyone out it, it's like the, it's not a secret you wouldn't watch this movie and not think she's abusing her power she is it's like right there it's very yeah. obvious but that to me that that's just kind of like the same thing as if she was i i wish i think a big part of it, it just felt like cliche in the terms of i could see obviously this movie was leading to her downfall and first of all i think that stuff happens way too late in the movie like i think olga we're kind of hinted at some weird stuff going on i think it, it's like an hour into the movie that olga comes in and i feel like the second act kind of shifts in gear when we find out um about the what, what was her name katie or uh krista Chris, krista taylor krista yeah there's a she there was someone named krista who she basically blacklisted from the symphony and the the conducting in i don't know what you would call it basically made it so that she would never conduct yeah and that ended up backfiring on her in the second act as well i just like the first act took way too long to get there i wasn't really there's there was a lot of like symphony i don't know there was like the the first scene was just a lot of her talking about the orchestra and stuff 
And I think it's kind of interesting, but it's just really long-winded. And I don't, it didn't give me any meat to hold on to. I think Tar herself is just not a likable person in any way. I think it would have been nice if, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that she's just kind of a, a mean person, but there was nothing, there was no real humanity for me to latch on to her with. Like, I can't think of any moments where I felt like she did something nice or something that I liked or something redeemable to make her more of a gray character. I think for me, most of Tar's humanity comes in the final, like, it's almost an epilogue. I even hesitate to, it's definitely the third act, but I even hesitate to call the third act because it's just so short. Mm -hmm. After her downfall, we have, we get to see a bit of the life that she has actively left behind like specifically run away from and sort of seeing her still be extremely successful but not at the level of prestige that she was before is like her personal hell and i think that's where the humanity comes from but it still doesn't make her likable it almost makes her less it it almost makes her even less likable because the thing that is the worst thing in the world for her is still like extremely successful for most people yeah well like because you know she brought herself to such a point right but yeah like like you said there were hints at her backstory there i just wish we got more of that in the movie like ideally in the first act so that i could kind of understand what was going on more um and relate to her in, in any way yeah I, I think Kate blanchett acted beautifully in this by the way i thought she was great as as tar i just think this the script wasn't good i don't know well uh, if you wanted more of Tar's backstory, I don't exactly know what it's about, but you may be in luck because Todd Field has announced that he will be creating a short film in the, that releases this year that expands the Tar universe. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't want fully that. <laughs> know what that means, but it sounds awesome. Uh, what, what did you think of Kate Blanchett? I remember before, before going into this, you, you said she was a, a huge... Uh, go for possibly winning best actress this year i uh i think she's amazing in this at the at the oscars my personal pick for best actress is still michelle yo but i think that this isn't equally maybe technically even better performance than in everything everywhere all at once like this is an insanely tough performance there's so much going on here even though Lydia Tarr is not likable she's such a layered character that like I don't know how you would play Lydia Tarr without just straight up becoming her for a year but at the same time like I don't think Kate Blanchett is a method actor like I don't think she literally cosplayed Lydia Tarr for a year but I don't know like yeah, I don't know how you would do this performance without just being this person. She was so believable in the role. She was so skilled in the role. And, like, it's such a layered performance that, like, this is maybe the technically best performance I've seen this year. Uh, once again, friend of the show Paulo Bautista put it really well in that same ContraZoom episode that I talked about earlier. Michelle Yeoh maybe gave the, mo the performance this year with the most heart, and like it's a really, really good performance that also just really resonates and has a lot of heart behind it. Where Tar is extremely cold, but technically an even better performance. But just it doesn't have that warmth to it at all. 
it, it felt like I was like, it was like a documentary or something at times. Like she yeah. was, she really was tar. Like, I think I, I can't remember the other actresses off the top of my head, but yeah, with like Michelle Yeoh, I think she did an amazing job and she, she definitely deserves to be nominated, but I, it still feels like she's playing a character, you know? Yeah. This was like on another level of acting in a way. And like, I, I think this type of acting is more suitable for a movie. I don't think you can have that type of acting in a movie, like everything everywhere all at once, because it's such a ridiculous movie. (laughs) Um, Imagine everything everywhere all at once. But the only difference is that Tar is in it instead of Michelle (laughs) Yeoh. That would actually be really interesting. Tar everywhere all at once. Uh, The movie like really, or Tar really is made for this performance essentially it, it's a character mm-hmm. piece obviously and uh yeah Kate Blanchett does amazing in this and I'd be really surprised if she didn't win a best actress after watching this I really liked her performance in early interviews about this movie Todd Field the director said without Kate Blanchett there is no tar I showed her this script and if she would have said no I wouldn't have made this movie I would have gone on to something else and like yeah. on, on the one hand that's exactly what you say when you're promoting a movie like this. On the <laughs> yeah. other hand, like I can't see anyone else in this role. And like, this is the performance of Kate Blanchett's lifetime. I think, I think that this is the second movie we've talked about from 2022 that will go on as an enduring classic, like forever right next to everything, everywhere, all at once. And actually maybe Top Gun Maverick, but like next to those two, I think this is like a real true classic. But even if it's not, as long as Kate Blanchett is a respected actress, this is going to be the performance that people that people remember her most for. I, I agree on the performance part, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I respect your opinion on everything else you said there. So, one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, this movie is up for Best Cinematography. What do you think of the hmm. look of this movie? Oh, it's beautiful. It's, it looks so good. Yeah, this was kind of like, I mean, it had the same color palette as Women Talking, but like it actually made sense for this movie because it was, it, it felt like it was shot on just like, you know, very naturally dark days and it's like in naturally darker environments and stuff and added to mm-hmm. the, I guess, kind I, I would say the unsettling prestige of it, you know? So many of the shots looked so sterile, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. When she's in high society, it looks so immaculate, which really emphasizes Tar as a character. Like I said, she's a layered character. She's got so many personality bits. But one of the biggest things that I notice about her is that like she has to be in control of everything. The reason that the third act makes her come up and feel real and like makes her puts her in essentially her own private hell is that that's the act where she's not in control of everything of anything. And the cinematography does actually kind of reflect that a bit by weirdly enough being more warm, but also being a little more chaotic where before that it's very cold, but it's also very controlled. Like the couple of times that she's in a restaurant eating with someone, she's either the only person in that restaurant, like her and the person she's talking to are either the only people in that restaurant or they're the only people that matter in that restaurant. If there's anyone else in that restaurant, you're barely even seeing them because like the camera just doesn't pay them any mind. And then later on Mm -hmm. in the like end of the movie, 
you know, the camera all of a sudden cares a little bit more about the auxiliary, auxiliary characters and um, the world around her because, I mean, the world is a bit free from her since she can't control it, but that's also the worst thing in the world for her. I mean, in terms of this, I, I loved how, in terms of the cinematography, how patient the camera was too. There's some shots where, like, we'll just, it'll just be like, the first scene that comes to mind is the scene where she talks to Sebastian about him or she's, she's firing him, I guess. And it, it plays kind of like a, a stage play almost where it's just, it's just one shot and we, we see them all interacting from relatively far away, actually from the camera and the whole scene plays out. And sometimes we'll see like, I one scene off the top of my head that I remember, but there's probably a few scenes where the characters aren't even like facing towards the camera and we just kind of see them talking uh like behind them or from like an odd distance and like i love i i'm a sucker for shots like that i think it's it's very it's very well shot I will say. this is a very technically very well made film i'll i'll give mm-hmm. it that i i love all those aspects of it yeah mm-hmm. did you notice i'm pretty sure that very early in the movie we actually see krista taylor i'm not 100% sure of it but i think so because in the very beginning of the movie uh tar is being interviewed and we see some of that interview from a perspective in the audience. The camera focuses right behind a a woman with red hair. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that based on the one single picture we see of Krista Taylor in this movie, that's Krista Taylor. She also yeah, walks out that. of that interview, I think. Like, uh, there, while, while watching that interview. I, I read that there's a couple shots, too, where if you... For very very brief moments, you can see. I it's I think it's implied to be Chris, like the ghost of Krista in her house. I guess implied to be haunting. Uh, what's her name? Tar. I guess you could say both literally and metaphorically. I don't know if there was actually a ghost in her house, but it's well, uh, it's implied that she's one of the demons that Tar is battling in her own head and publicly yeah. later in the movie. Well, because there's so many scenes in her house where stuff just keeps happening in her house and it's kind of left up to the imagination. Why? Because in a movie that wanted to focus more on that, that could have been a legitimate ghost story. But as it Mm. is, it's just sometimes some weird stuff will wake her up, like a metronome that's just going. And then there's like weird symbols written on it. But then like she finds those same symbols. It's the S that everyone drew in high school. And like... (laughs) her daughter is drawing that S a lot. So like it can kind of be explained by maybe her daughter is just like pulling some shenanigans in the night, but also like those things are happening while she's dealing with the Krista situation. So kind of metaphorically, it is Krista haunting her life. Literally it might also be, or there's another possible explanation, but it doesn't really matter because the metaphorical demon is the more important one there. Yeah, exactly. And those scenes, I guess, add a little intrigue to this idea that Tar is, she's not completely of a sane mind, I think. It's implied in this movie a few times. And I think it's, yeah, it's it's up to the interpretation of the viewer as to whether or not what's happening is actually happening or whatever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I believe before we, uh, before we went into this episode, you had mentioned that you had some stuff to say about the script. Do you already say that? Did I, am I missing something or? I mean, sort of, I, I just think this, it's, it's a bad 
script in my opinion i like, like i i guess i said i touched on it earlier it just i've i've seen a lot of like tragic like the tragic downfall of someone's careers in movies i think this captures that same feeling but i don't like like i have no relatability to tar in my opinion you said she's like a a layered character i never really felt that way i think like her character always felt pretty straightforward like there's you could argue there's some scenes that flesh her out like you know she's married she has a daughter that she wants to protect she's a genius in in the uh the the conductor industry i guess but they never really add up to anything to me like there's a lot of boring symphony mumbo jumbo that i just didn't really care for in the screenplay I think there's a way of portraying that better. Like in Whiplash, there's a lot of that stuff that like I didn't know about, but I found it interesting because I feel like it fed into the plot. I think you could have replaced the symphony with like really any other art form and the movie mostly would have been the same. Um, it doesn't really affect the core narrative. Uh, what else? I, I think like the stuff with the daughter, she has a daughter and a wife. I thought they had like, for some reason, like, very understated roles in the movie and i don't really get any semblance of a strong relationship between any of them i do like the idea that it's implied that her daughter is the only non-transactional relationship she has but we i don't get enough scenes between them to really let that flesh out and really feel that relationship uh play out i'd say in general like the themes of this movie are boring and we've seen before and the ones that are kind of interesting, like that separating the art and the artist aren't really touched on in any way. Like you could say that the the downfall of her career is an example of her not separating her art from the artistry, but I feel like the movie doesn't really go anywhere with that. And I think the ultimate resolution of her character arc and the story is very quick because it's like, she's like dealing with these things and all of a sudden we flash to her basically moving away right and it all happens really quickly and i didn't really like that because i think the meat of this story could have been how does she navigate this me too controversy and legally and also personally with her family and stuff i thought that would have been an interesting part of the movie but that would have been like two hours in and i think the movie was already too long at that point and i didn't like the implication that for some reason it, it felt like i i get I kind of get what the movie might be saying in terms of she's returned to this Southeastern Asian country. I don't, I, it's not really said where she is, right? It's it's not specifically stated, but they said it's where they shot a Marlon Brando oh, movie. So yeah. it's where they shot Apocalypse <laughs> Now, which I think was the Philippines. The Philippines. Okay. I didn't like the implication because it felt like the movie was trying to show that Oh, she is now being punished for her, for what she has done by throwing her into a third world country in Southeast Asia. And this is like, like, this is her downfall, you know, uh, I get, I guess you could argue that like, it's not really a downfall, which is like, um, it's just kind of a, she's moving somewhere else. Cause I think there was some of that with the me too movement. So there could be commentary merit there, but to me, it felt like they were implying that her being in this third world country is the ultimate punishment and that she has lost all her status by being there. And it might be because like I or my mom is from like a Southeast Asian country that I I find it personally like conflicting because I, I guess I don't like the idea that 
it feels like the movie is saying that oh she's in this country which is like someone like her for someone like her this is like the ultimate like punishment and now she has she has completed her downfall of her career i found that kind of insulting in my opinion yeah yeah i felt the same way the first time i watched it and i felt a little bit better about it the second time but like it is still a weird note to end on because in addition to that i i can't really speak from the southeast asian perspective but i also found it very weird at the end she's conducting a monster hunter world symphony concert which is played for laughs which like in the context of the whole movie it's a little absurd because it's a movie about conducting Mahler's fifth symphony and it ends on a monster hunter world concert which like is kind of funny but also it's like in the context of the movie it's specifically sort of it, it the movie starts with her bio sort of talking about how tar uh, is trying to expand the canon a bit. And throughout the movie, it goes through like why she's kind of a hypocrite in that regard. But then it ends with her, the way that it's implied is that her punishment is performing a lesser art form in a lesser country, which is just like, it's a weird note to end on because almost anything else up until that scene would have made both of those statements a little less explicit and therefore less insulting, but then just ending on the ultimate insult to both Monster Hunter World, which who cares, but then also like <laughs> Southeast Asia, which is like just it's 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 such a weirdly elitist note to end on for a movie that is sort of grappling with it's sort of grappling with a character whose main fault is her elitist nature. Yeah, I like I I would understand it more if it was clarified earlier in the movie that she's like my greatest fear is to, to end up back home in a Southeast Asian country performing for video games or something. Like give it some context, but without context it just feels like an insult to that country. Mhm. Mm and this is like really this is actually a really weird feeling for me because I've actually I personally like I've never really felt offended by anything I've seen in a movie before especially due to my my race like I don't even identify I, I, I don't feel Asian if that makes sense and I've seen like really like on paper racist stuff about Asians that like I don't care about I think it's usually pretty funny this is like the only time I've ever actually felt like kind of insulted by it because I think it, it just feels hypocritical like kind of like the the character of Tar where this is a, a movie that is talking about this commenting on classism and this idea of how how destructive it can be to the industry and how you know it, it affects a lot of people and stuff and in that very same movie after finishing talking about that commentary with no context it's basically saying this is a bad place to be like they, they show they show scenes of her like there's crocodiles in the water and it's like this is supposed to be like Oh my god, this country's terrible. There's crocodiles in America. Like this isn't like if they were focusing on like some obviously weird parts that she did not like, then I I I get it. You know, like maybe she has a fear of crocodiles or something. But it's implied that like, oh, these guys are are catcalling her. Uh, and that only happens in Asia. Like that would never happen in Europe. That's a bad thing. So she's suffering. There's crocodiles in the water. That's like that's a third world country thing. So she's suffering in this area. 
And it's just like, it, it felt, and the same thing, like I'm a gamer. <laughs> it felt like it was like the ultimate insult was she is performing for a group of fans of a franchise. And it's like the joke was on the fans where it's like, look at these idiots dressed in costumes. She has to perform for these guys compared to the movie is framing it as it would have been better if she was performing for a bunch of well-dressed people that are a higher of class. And again, it's, I think it would have been fixed if she clarified she does not want to perform for those types of people. So then it's more in context of her character arc, but it feels like the movie is saying something, if that makes sense, through those scenes. Yeah, it's weird because the perspective of this movie, I mean, that's the interpretation I got from it the first time too. And I'm not saying that's a wrong interpretation. I think that's like the maybe even the most valid interpretation. But I think the movie does like, there are hints in the script that sort of work against that. They're just, at best, way too subtle. Because, like, where she says we should go swimming, but then there's crocodiles in the water, there's a throwaway line there that where the person who's in the boat also says, like, these crocodiles aren't even from here. They were brought with the Marlon Brando movie, and then they escaped. So it's like, this third world country is, like, suffering the effects of random American celebrities coming there and messing with their ecosystem but it's like it's like a throwaway line and it doesn't undo the rest of the context of that it's not just that there are random crocodiles and therefore this is a bad place which isn't what you're saying but like they try and provide bits and pieces of context there um and there's an important scene earlier on where she goes to her neighbor's apartment and has to interact with her neighbor who is suffering some mental health issues, but more specifically has a very unwell mother at the end of her life who like needs a lot of support. And Tar has to help put her mother on her, I don't even know what it is. It's like, it's a toilet, (laughs) but it's like a wheelchair also. Wheelchair toilet, yeah. And like the moment she gets back to her apartment, she immediately has to like wash every part of her body. It's more than like she's washing her hands because she just like, dealt with someone who I don't know maybe had spit on herself or something it was like she doesn't want to be anywhere around these kind of people which again sort of is the movie talking about that classism and and that is the point of the movie where Tar like Tar would never say it outright but like she has a very specific class of people she wants to be around which is why the ending is for her as bad as it is. So it's like those moments are there, but they're way too subtle to make an, I don't even know if subtle, because like they're not really secrets, but they're put there in a way where the ending still kind of feels, what's weird about the ending is the ending almost feels like the movie is being insulting, not that Tar is being insulting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's the thing, like, I think when you are portraying a character's perspective on these things and them not liking it, I don't mind that. But we don't really, we are not really clarified on Tara's position on being in that in the Philippines either. It's most, it feels like it's mostly just set on, like a lot of it is just kind of just shots of the Philippines, from what I can tell. And like, they're it, it's, actually it's, like great travel shots. 
I know, yeah, they look like great travel shots, but to me, it felt like the movie was trying to portray it as like the ultimate prison for her. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I There's not really much more I can say about that. But I don't know, I guess it was like, I'd, I'd like to hear, I, I'd like to hear someone's perspective that is more Asian than me. And like, maybe there's there's a silver lining there. Maybe there's like more in that, because I, I did have trouble, you know, paying attention the whole movie. Maybe there's some throwaway lines of dialogue that I missed that might provide better context for that scene. And I'm not saying that the the directors or anything were trying to be racist here. It, it left me with a bad taste in my mouth and... Uh, I think that could have been executed a lot better. So there is a scene very early on where she's eating dinner with Mark Strong and she says, you know, Mark Strong, the thing that I think would be the worst possible thing for me is if I went to the Philippines and performed the Monster Hunter World concert. <laughs> so yeah, the, there you go. Like, maybe I, I guess I missed that scene. So I take it back. I think I think this movie is a 10 out of 10 movie <laughs> that fixes it for me. No, I don't know. I, I think like the, I had a lot of problems with this movie before. I think that was just kind of like the cherry on top for like, I, I don't like this movie. And that kind of clarified it for me. So yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a great, it's a well-made movie. I, I just think it's it's uh, misguided just basically due to this the script itself. But I think everything else is very well done. Mm-hmm. I'm actually very curious to know what you would rate this movie then. Thinking like a three. <laughs> oh, fair. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's tough. I I, I guess like I want to clarify like because I, I I there's a lot of this movie I do like. I think the way it positions itself, it should be a lot better than like a lot of individual parts of this are good, but if it doesn't add up, and especially given like the context of this movie, like it's I think it's presenting itself as like a prestigious movie. Like it's it's a two hour and forty minute drama. There there should be more there. So yeah. I think as a movie overall, it's like a three out of 10 for me. I mean, I think for me, it's uh, again, a very strong eight. You son of a bitch. <laughs> no, well, the thing for me is like, I really, really like the technical aspects of this movie. And like, I fully understand the criticisms of it and the misguidedness of a lot of the messaging. It's not enough to push it way down for me because I think that it's just technically such a well-made movie. It's one that made me think a lot. And what I and I'm really happy that like that that we got to talk about it as long as we did. Like that there was that much to say about it. But it's it's one that like I just find myself wanting to rewatch because there's so much here that like after both of the times that I've watched it, there's so many scenes that like I just don't know what I think about. Like that entire third act to me is almost fascinating for like how divisive I myself find it within my own head like there's so much there that I think is but the third act works really well in relation to the rest of the film but almost because of how well it works in relation to the rest of the film it makes it seem so much worse in the parts of it that are like bizarre and potentially bad choices that like I find myself just wanting to revisit this film so much in my in my head and then like I really did look forward to watching it the second time because I was like, I have so many questions about this movie. I know what to watch for next. So to me, it's just, it's a movie that's almost more fascinating than it is good. But at the same time, it is a very, very well-made movie. And like, I can't discount that. So it still ends up very high, but like, you know, that's not to detract the potential problems of it. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I would never fault anyone for like really enjoying this movie. It is a really well-made movie. I do want to point out, this is Dakota Arsenault, friend of the show. It's his favorite movie of the Best Picture nominees <laughs> this year. And I will yeah. fault him for a lot of things, but like technically not for that. Yeah, yeah. No, I could see like, I mean, just on Kate Blanchett's uh, performance alone, like I can see why this is such a, a big front runner this year for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have one last call in from a friend of the show, Mark. He was on the episode where we talked about Dummy and Quibi. And uh, he is actually a classical musician. So I had him. Oh, wow. I, I asked him to give his opinion as a classical musician on Tar. So here's that. Hello. Thank you so much to Jeff for inviting me on this week's podcast to talk about Tar from the perspective of a classical musician. One of my big conflicts with classical music is the inaccessibility of the medium for the masses. So many people struggle to get on board with listening to orchestral music through this illusion that it's somehow too intellectual or too complex for the everyday listener, when I would argue that it's the most emotionally engaging form of music, which can touch people in ways personal to them without having to understand the nitty-gritty details about chord progressions and cadences. Musicians like Shostakovich were able to mould classical music into political dissidents, or even Tchaikovsky was able to express his, reple- his repressed sexuality and chart his queer journey through the decades of his music. But you can still listen to those pieces now and appreciate them simply for the beauty they put into the world without all of that context. One of the reasons I love Tar is that it criticised the way that classical music can be withheld from the general public. Lydia Tar is a character for whom classical music must be intellectualised and obscured from wider audiences, making it an elitist pastime for only the privileged few and an expression of her own ego. From her perspective, only she is educated enough to understand and interpret classical music, taking on the mammoth task of interpreting every one of Mahler's symphonies in her own style. While explaining her interpretation to the orchestra, she speaks in unsubtitled German, literally a foreign language for the audience, making sure that no one else can understand her vision. When she finally rediscovers the VHS of her old idol and the way they took great length to democratise classical music for the masses, it's a tragic moment for her because it's something she could and will never do. The culmination of her character is then to recede from the world stage and put herself back into a literally alien culture before a literally foreign audience and to build herself back from the ground up. She has to return to her roots in Peru, where she was discovering a new culture and helping express obscure music to a new audience to educate them. A really beautiful ending for her character arc as she challenges her own arrogance and elitism, as well as the arrogance and elitism inherent to classical music. So, yeah, that's what I loved about Tar. Now that you've watched all the Best Picture winners, what do you think? Or not Best Picture winners, Best Picture nominees. What do you think, Pierre, just in general? Um, I think overall, like, my choices for the winners hasn't changed, I guess. I think women talking in Tar, we, <laughs> we just talked about Tar. So, oh, I, I guess now I can definitely say, like, I think Kate Blanchett will win Best Actress. Mm-hmm. And if not, she's, like, definitely a front runner in there. She's really good in this. I think women talking is just kind of in an unfortunate position where I think it's very well done, but that's definitely, like, a middle-of-the-pack type of movie where... I don't really see it doing extremely well in any specific awards. And I think it it's very likely that Women Talking will go back empty-handed overall. Maybe adapted screenplay, but yeah. I think the fact that it was nominated for Best Picture gives it a very good chance at adapted screenplay. Not mm-hmm. that like, 
I think there's, I think the other things that are in adapted screenplay, I don't know what's all in adapted screenplay. I have to check. Adapted screenplay also has Top Gun Maverick and All Quiet on the Western Front, which were also both nominated for Best Picture. But I think the fact that even though Women Talking was only nominated for Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay, I actually think that that second nomination, that nomination for Best Picture, makes it maybe the strongest entry in Adapted Screenplay. Because like mm. those are its only two nominations, which means, at least to me, anecdotally, means that it got into Best Picture on the strength of its screenplay, which like oh. Top Gun Maverick and All Quiet on the Western Front maybe were in there on the strength of their screenplays. But like their screenplays are there and they got a lot of other nominations. So there's a lot of stuff going on where Women Talking is like, it's only got the two. So to me, that makes it a very strong contender in adapted screenplay. But I can also see it leaving with nothing yeah it, it's gonna be it's, it's it's gonna be a tough wait what else was in there what are the other two in adapted best adapted screenplay is all quiet on the western front glass onion living top gun maverick and women talking okay no i i actually i guess i could see it winning you're right i think it has a pretty decent chance but i don't think glass mm. onion will win for sure no and i really hope top unless i i gotta listen to this episode by uh paulo to uh, maybe I will be very surprised about uh, his thoughts and it'll completely change my mind. So we'll see. Maybe we ruined our, uh, like, talking about Best Picture when, I don't remember if you'd already heard of it, but I remember when I saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, I was like, dude, you have to see this. And then we immediately talked about it. And, like, nothing was ever going to beat that in my head, I don't think. Like, that was always going to yeah, be my uh, number one for Best Picture. It feels like, like, I feel like a lot of my favorite movies are movies that I watched when I was younger. This feels like the same type of thing where I watched that really early in the year and my mind would just kind of set on it. And mm -hmm. uh, we're at a point where like, like, I feel like no matter how good any movie was, that never was going to get replaced from the top there just because of, yeah, like it's been in yeah. my mind for a year for the Oscars. So, mm -hmm. but we'll see. We'll see how good it does. You never know. Oh, man, I want to talk way more about all of these nominees specifically. But, uh, you know, our next episode is going to be our episode on the Oscars themselves. So I think we'll probably talk a little bit about all of these nominees on that episode when we when we start that. I don't know how many things you have left to watch, but you should start cleaning up some of the auxiliary categories so we can so we can talk a little bit about those. Yeah, I was like, I was looking through some of these and I I think I'm pretty screwed this year. I should have started way earlier, but I'll try my best, Jeff. You can tell me privately which ones you haven't seen and I'll yeah. like recommend you what order you should watch them in. Okay, like just in do like for importance. Okay, that'll be good. Well, I mean, in terms of importance and just like I've seen all these so I can tell you which ones are good. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That works for me. All right. Well, this might be our longest episode in a while, which I guess makes yeah. sense because it was a double episode. But still, what's our last word, Pierre? Tar. Tar. <laughs>